Future Perfect is a gathering at Data and Society that explores the uses, abuses, and paradoxes of speculative futures. Tamara K. Knopper's talk on the limitations of financialized futures addresses how credit agencies such as FICO use narratives of credit as personal responsibility to justify increased data surveillance of consumers. How's everybody doing? Good. Um, so my name is Tamara. Uh, first, I want to thank Ingrid, Beth, Rigo, CJ, and all the volunteers who helped make this possible. And also thank you to all of you um, for showing up today. So alternative data, credit scoring, and financial freedom. So um, people know who Jay-Z is, I'm assuming, right? Um, and so uh, he put out this very provocative music video called The Story of OJ. And one of the things that I was very struck by is, you know, he asked this question and he says, you want to know what's uh, more important than wasting money at the strip club, right? Um, and that's a very specific question, by the way, right? And it's one that we could actually sit and pause with. But for the purpose of this, we'll move on to see what his answer was. And his answer was credit, right? And is, who's seen the video? Okay, so a few of you, right? Um, it is available on YouTube, uh, in, on the internet, okay? And, um, and so literally, this is me here, the answer. But when he says credit, the way he says it, it's like almost a thud. He's like, credit, right? And the music video and uh, the song is a lot about him kind of thinking through racial politics, uh, race identity, and money, Right, and him thinking through kind of investments he's made, um, where he's at today, and so forth. And so, one of the things that you know, as Ingrid talked about in the introduction, I'm deeply concerned about um, non-white people and the racial wealth gap, and the issue of money, and the level of stress that people are experiencing um, in terms of money. And so, this question around kind of financial freedom, right? So there's a line in his song where he says, financial freedom is my only hope, right? Financial freedom, my only hope. And this kind of question about, well, what does financial freedom actually look like, right? Um, in terms of uh, racial justice, in terms of just kind of our day-to-day -day lives. So that's something that I'm preoccupied with. As Ingrid also mentioned, I'm preoccupied with this question about surveillance. So I'm thinking a lot about kind of um, the traps of money and also um, how money and policing and surveillance connect, right? So I teach in a justice studies program that's connected to the sociology program at Rhode Island College, and I'm developing a course um, for a future semester on money, crime, and punishment. And just thinking a lot about like what are the nitty gritty ways that money and policing and punishment kind of combine. So this is part of that bigger kind of project, um, and it might not be so obvious, but we're going to talk about that a little bit at the end. All right. So one of the things is, you know, uh, there was a lot of debate on social media, as there usually always is, about kind of um, certain music videos. And so there was a lot of debate about kind of Jay-Z's commentary about money. And I was interested in the conversation about credit, because at the time I was working on a chapter for Ruha Benjamin's book, um, Captivating Technology, which will be out in 2019 on Duke University Press, right? I figured I'd <laughs> plug it, right? Okay. Um, and 
in that book, people are thinking about the issue around kind of policing freedom and technology. And so I was writing about alternative data and um, about fintech lenders, people who are using kind of financial technology, doing a lot of online lending um, on uh, the internet, and the way they're posing themselves as kind of alternatives. And they're posing themselves as alternatives for people who would be considered, quote unquote, invisible and unscorable. These are the words that are used by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a federal agency that is very much tasked with kind of concerns around uh, consumer protections. So you're hearing a lot about them right now um, regarding kind of trying to stand up against uh, predatory lenders, particularly around like um, the subprime crisis, as well as uh, uh, um, payday lenders and so forth, right? So they call credit invisibles those without an NCRA record. And this is a national credit rating agency. So this is Equifax, Experian, and um, TransUnion, right? So there's about 26 million adults who do not have, um, who are credit invisible. Then there are people who are considered credit unscorable. Oh, I, I see the difference when you put the mic closer. Okay, credit unscorables, right? These are people who do have a credit record, but they have insufficient credit history to generate a credit score. And so that could be that um, uh, they haven't used a certain kind of um, account, right? So you know how, let's say, if you have stayed at the same location for a long time and you haven't opened up a new account, or if you um, stopped paying on something, right? And so there's about 45 million people that would not be eligible for kind of Jay-Z's answer about the strip club, right? That's a lot of people. And so one thing that's happening is you have this kind of concern among politicians as well as among uh, community advocates about, well, what happens then to these folks who are invisible and unscorable, right? And I, I just have to pause and say this is some interesting language that's being used, right, when we're thinking about kind of surveillance and tracking, right? And so um, what's happening is people are saying, okay, you know, credit matters. And it really does in this economy. So things like a mortgage or a loan, right? Um, being able to rent, um, issues around jobs. There are some uh, policies where they're trying to not let your credit score be part of your job applications, but that's still kind of in the process, right? So. Um, this is something, if we look at uh, this figure, and this comes from a report from the Community Financial Protection, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, right, is what we see is this definitely affects uh, non-white people the most, right, particularly black and Latino people. Um, and so this is something where people are saying, you know, being unscorable or invisible is definitely something that contributes to the racial wealth gap. It's something that affects, obviously, poor and working class people. And uh, we know that poor and working class people is racially diverse. But as far as kind of who's more disproportionately um, in the poor and working class segments, right? And so the intersection with race and class. This also obviously intersects with gender. Right? If we think about a lot of times um, the status of women, and part of the history of trying to kind of make credit more available is about women trying to kind of demand more equal protection around kind of access to credit. So that's something like if we think about um, the Equal Opportunity uh, Credit Act in 1974. A lot of women, um, particularly including those who are married um, and were often being judged through their husbands and, and the way that their financial status was kind of regulated through marriage, they were at the forefront and kind of pushing some of these demands as well as um, people of color. And yes, people of color and women can be one in 
the same, I know that, but it's hard to slash when you're talking, okay? So the thing is, um, you know, they were at the forefront of kind of pushing for access, right? So a lot of times access to something gets associated with being kind of racial or gender or class uh, justice issue. And I'm somebody who thinks a lot about what are the alternatives, right, to uh, power and domination. And are those alternatives something that really speaks to kind of expanding freedom or do they include newer traps, right? And, and so I'm thinking about the idea of alternative data as a trap. All right. So one thing is, this is from a website, and when you look at alternative data, that's the term that's getting used by a lot of people, including the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, banks, um, a lot of kind of business websites. Um, so that's the lingo that's being used. And so alternative data would include, um, and so real quick, like here's the Community Financial Protection Bureau is exploring the impact of this, right? Uh, this was from 2017. So they're in the process of kind of, you know, figuring out what are people's thoughts about it um, and so forth. Advocates, for example, um, people who work in, uh, uh, in law, um, they're talking about the privacy issues. So when we think about kind of privacy and civil liberties, things like financial surveillance are part of that conversation. So this is um, something that, um, this is currently still um, floating around. So this hasn't made much movement um, in um, uh, Congress, but this is in 2017. This is Senator Tim Scott. He is a Republican from South Carolina. Um, uh, expanding kind of alternative data options is getting bipartisan support, right? And so one of the things that they talk about here is they talk about the FICO score, right? And FICO has become kind of synonymous with credit score. FICO is the credit score that was established in 1989, so it's still fairly new, by the Fair Isaac Corporation. But it's become kind of the dominant score in a lot of ways, and FICO has done a lot to kind of push itself to be the dominant score. So when you read like um, fintech companies saying, oh, we're providing an alternative, or when you read news stories like this, they name the FICO score as kind of credit score. They treat it as synonymous, right? And so um, what you have here is this kind of push also politically, right, for alternative data. Now, one of the things that we want to remember and that, you know, I think is really important about credit scoring is credit scoring is so ubiquitous. It's something that's treated as necessary. And it very much, as I said, it is a lot of times necessary to kind of do any kind of financial activity that we see as meaningful. But it's a business, right? Fair Isaac Corporation is a business. And the FICO score is a business, TransUnion, Experian, and so forth, right? And so one of the things that's been interesting to see is how these companies, including FICO, are responding to the challenges that are being posed to them. And they're, you know, doing this interesting kind of dance, right? Um, they're talking about themselves as being less discriminatory and more scientific. So one of the things I raise in the chapter for Ruha's book is about how you know, FICO tries to treat itself as less discriminatory than digital lenders. And I uh, introduced this concept called digital character because a lot of these online lenders are tracking your social media, right? So we've heard about how in China they're doing kind of social characteristics and so forth, right? That's happening here. So they're tracking things like your Facebook, your Twitter. They're looking at where you tweet from. Do you have 
an iPhone, right? Or are you tweeting from a cafe? Does that tell them that you don't really have good phones? All of that stuff, right? So they're doing all this kind of data collection. The way Fair Isaac and these companies are responding is they're saying, hold on a second. We're more scientific. We're more unbiased, right? We're not going to do that type of stuff, right? But what you see is different companies like TransUnion and also, as I'll show you, FICO, they're trying to get into the alternative data game, right? Because this is getting, you know, more and more traction politically, and it's building more momentum, right? And so they're saying, well, we can also do alternative data, right? And so here's a new product that TransUnion is promoting saying, oh, you know, you're saying we're too limited in the scoring that we participate in. We can also expand what we look at, right? Here, for example, is FICO, right? And FICO now wants you to know they have a new score, not just the FICO score, but they have a new score that also takes into account alternative data. So that can include, and this is some of the stuff, if we look here, it probably is hard to see back there, so I'm just gonna emphasize some of this. But if we think about um, the politicians, right, who are talking about kind of alternative data, they're talking about things like maybe your rental payments, your utility payments, your cell phone bills, right? And they're saying, okay, we can include more of that and see if you kind of pay on time to assess risk and the possibility of defaulting, right? Also social network data, right? Social profile data. Um, FICO also wants you to know that they're uh, working with these uh, highly systematic products to do interesting kind of, you know, profiles on you, right? So this is something where they're having this kind of battle, right, in the marketplace over what data to use, but also who's going to remain, quote unquote, more scientific and supposedly less discriminatory, right? Um, and so this is something where they also then know that this conversation around alternative data is a conversation about inequality, right? And particularly about people of color and or working class people, right? Um, and so as they say in the survey data, that's where they get into this whole thing about like they're working with people to really do some real deep stuff or scientifically, right? But all this to say is, the major credit scores in the game are jumping into the alternative data business, right? And to remind us once again that this is a business, right? Now, one of the things is, this is from their website, FICO score myth versus reality, right? And what I'm very interested in is this relationship between policy and narrative, right? And, you know, what are the narratives that are being constructed about why are people struggling economically? right, um, about also choices. So I think this is something that's very interesting with your work, Rose, because part of what you're getting at in a lot of ways were these choices people were making um, about a lot of things that some of us might want to keep private, but that is something that's being tracked, their financial decisions, right? And when we think about kind of choose your own adventure, right, we know that it's much more complicated than that. We're choosing our own adventure against the structural realities, right, they're being shaped. So here, one of the things that FICO has been critiqued for is how do you calculate your scores? And they don't tell us all that. They just say, well, these are things that we take into account, right? Your repayment history, your new credit accounts, right? But they have trade secrets because, again, they're a business. So the way they actually calculate these scores are trade secrets for these companies. 
And yet these scores have so much impact in our lives, right? So these are political issues. They're not allowed to be open to public scrutiny in a certain way, right? And this is what's really deep to me if we think about kind of the choose your own adventure um, kind of like mythology, right? It says, this data is pulled from your credit report and plugged into the FICO trademark um, score formula. Your FICO score moves up and down as this data changes. Your precise FICO score at any given moment is a snapshot in time because new data is constantly added to your credit report. You alone have the power to improve your score by consistently paying all your bills on time and managing your credit wisely, right? And so the narrative, right, the idea of kind of everything is about personal responsibility, you alone have the power, right? That narrative is so pervasive, right? You know, I teach sociology of race and ethnicity. I teach sociology of the family. And in those courses, we think a lot about these discourses around culture and behavior and the way that inequality gets explained, right? And so it's so pervasive, but it's something that they can attach as part of kind of their advertising. And it does a lot of kind of political work, right? And so one of the things, um, you know, is, as I said about the fintech battle, right, and the fintech kind of lenders battling with kind of uh, the FICO lenders, as I said, you know, they might have conflict in the marketplace, but they're not antagonistic in terms of vision, right? They're still committed to this idea of kind of a scored society. So I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Frank Pasquale, right? Um, and so he and Daniel uh, Keith Citron have talked about the scored society, the idea of kind of being scored people. This goes, I think, a lot to your point, right, um, Dan? And so um, the way that we're kind of calculated as a score, this is not a totally new thing. But when we think about alternative data, it means more and more and more of our information and our decisions, right? And tough decisions, things like, do I you know, uh, pay the light bill or maybe get, you know, um, you know, hope that they keep the lights on and I'll pay my rent instead, right? Or I, you know, somebody got sick and I have to figure out, do I call an ambulance? Or you know, when you're talking about the robots, right? Or the quality of care that I can afford. Um, and so do I let something else slide in my bill payment history? And so what this means is the so-called solution, alternative data, is actually just taking more and more of people's activities and decision-making and tough decisions and emotional decisions and stressful and physically demanding decisions, right? And it's saying that this data is going to free you in some ways to get access to something that does have meaning, such as credit, right? And so it means more surveillance, right? It means kind of more of the way that you're kind of blamed right, for certain decision-making activity, even though you don't set the prices for a lot of things, right, and, you know, the decisions that you're making are based upon structural, you know, dynamics that you don't have total control over, right, and it's being marketed as freedom, and so that's something where um, that just really, really frustrates me, and it, it repulses me, frankly. Okay, so I want to end with Adrienne Rich, right, the poet. Um, I'm a big fan of her poetry. 
And uh, one of the ways that I comfort myself is I read a lot of quotes and passages. Um, and so if we think about people like James Boggs, if we think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Adrian Rich, a lot of them were talking about technology. And this is something very prominent in James Boggs' work. And they were talking about technology in terms of also our social vision, right? Um, what vision do we actually have that we're trying to implement with the technology? So she asked this question, can a radical social imagination clothe itself in a language worn thin by usage or debased by marketing, promotion, and the will to power? A new century, even a new technology, doesn't of itself produce newness. It is live human beings looking in all directions who will do this. And she wrote this in 2001. And so when I think about how alternatives get marketed, when I think about you know, all the different technology that's being used and how it's being marketed as justice or equality or freedom or new opportunities, um, I found this quote very useful for thinking critically through that. Okay, thank you very much. Tamara K. Knopper's teaching and research focuses on the intersection of economic, racial, and gender inequality. She earned her Ph.D. in sociology at Temple University.